Welcome to the Church Leaders Podcast, conversations with today's top ministry leaders to help you lead better every day. And now podcasting from scenic Colorado Springs, Colorado, here's your host, Jason Day. Hello, friends, and welcome to the Church Leaders Podcast. I'm your host, Jason Day. And this week, I had the pleasure of speaking with Christina Dent. Christina is the founder and president of End It For Good, a conservative nonprofit that invites people to consider alternatives to our criminal justice approach to drugs and drug use. These alternatives range from ending criminal penalties for drug possession to legal regulation of substances, all with a kingdom-focused goal of less societal harm. Today, Christina and I discuss approaches to minimizing drug harm across our communities. Christina shares her personal story that led to her views of a criminal approach to drug use being challenged. We talk about the responsibility of church leaders in addressing the drug problem, including practical ideas and resources that churches can use. This episode will likely get you thinking more deeply, so be sure to pass it along. And now, let's jump into my conversation with Christina Dent. Christina, welcome to the Church Leaders Podcast. I appreciate you being with us today. Thanks so much, Jason. I'm really excited to be here. Now, Christina, you describe yourself as a politically conservative Christian, yet you hold views on criminalization and drugs that many might feel are at odds with being politically conservative. And you've shared that your journey began when you became a foster parent. So can you share with us how did becoming a foster parent uh, change your view on the war on drugs? Absolutely. So I grew up in Mississippi in a wonderful Christian family. I was homeschooled kindergarten through high school. Um, we were politically conservative, and I grew up in a um, conservative strain of Presbyterianism in the Presbyterian Church in America. Never used drugs while I was growing up. I went to a Christian liberal arts university. I have a degree in Bible. Uh, never used drugs while I was in college. Drugs have not been part of my life experientially or in my friend group. So I never really thought about how we handle drugs other than to think, you know, drugs are bad and drug use is bad. And so outlawing drugs is the right thing to do. Um, so really my story, like you said, is not a radically changed lifestyle. It's really a radically changed mind. And until about five years ago, um, those were the views that I continued to hold, um, tougher sentences, stronger penalties. Um, and then we became foster parents, like you said, and through fostering, I met Joanne and Joanne was um, a mom who had struggled with addiction for um, many years, was pregnant and was not able to beat her addiction during her pregnancy. And her son was removed from her custody while um, right after he was born, uh, straight from the hospital, he came to our house and he became our foster son. And I did not know anything about addiction. I didn't know anything about why people use drugs. I didn't know anything about <clears throat> um, trauma or the role that it plays in driving a lot of drug use and addiction. And so I thought a mom who used drugs while she was pregnant must not love her child. And that was the only context I really had to think about that. I couldn't understand that as a mother myself. How could you use drugs um, if you loved your children? And so I took Beckham for his first visit with Joanne at our local child welfare office. And um, I popped his car seat out of my van. I had my three other little boys with me. Um, and we, I turned around in the parking lot and there was Joanne sprinting across the parking lot with tears streaming down her face. Um, she didn't look at me. She just started covering her son with kisses while I was awkwardly holding his car seat in the parking lot. 
looking around wondering what on earth was happening because this was definitely not what I was expecting. And she spent her one hour with him, wanted to know everything about, you know, when does he eat and what is he, uh, how much does he normally eat and um, all sorts of different things that I just thought, this isn't what I thought at all. And I honestly was really suspicious. And I thought, there's no way that this is true. She's probably just wanting to try to impress me, maybe to get me to put a good word in with the social worker. Um, but I don't have any category in my mind for this to be real. Hmm. So Joanne left for inpatient drug treatment in another part of the state. And um, Beckham stayed with us for um, a little while <clears throat> while she was in that treatment. And she would call me. Uh, we had agreed that, that she could call and check on him. And she would call me and she would say, can you put me on speakerphone? And she would sing to him over the phone while I held the phone and his little five pound, nine ounce, tiny little body would be sleeping in his car seat. And she would say, that's fine. Just let me sing to him. Um, and I just saw this mother who loved her son just as much as I love my three sons, this fierce love, this desperate desire to do the right thing, to be there for him, to be a good mom, even though she was struggling with his addiction. And that was a huge problem for me because it didn't fit at all with what I had thought about people who use drugs, people struggling with addiction. And um, it was a problem because Mississippi has the third highest incarceration rate in the nation. The United States has by far the highest incarceration rate in the world. And I knew that we were putting moms like Joanne in prison every day for the same thing that she was struggling with, a drug addiction. And I could see in her that this was not going to be the right thing to help this family. It would create just catastrophic additional harm. So her addiction was harmful, but putting her in prison wasn't going to fix that. And it was going to create all of this additional harm of, you know, how do we support this very vulnerable family? It's going to take her away from Beckham for his growing up years. And I knew from training as a foster parent that the trauma that children experience when they're young has profound impacts on them for the rest of their life. And I knew that being separated from his mom was a deeply traumatic experience, even for an infant. And so I really created this war in my heart over, wait a second, I'm not sure if this is real and I'm seeing that it is, um, I'm not sure that what we're doing is the best thing. And that really started for me this journey of zooming out and saying, okay, even if I think drugs aren't good. And even if I think drug use isn't good, it is outlawing, is criminalizing the right thing to do. Is the criminal justice system the right tool to be using for this issue? And that really forced me to zoom out and say, let's look at the big picture um, and, and all of the collateral damage and consequences that come from how we handle drugs. So there's some consequences um, from prohibition. There's some consequences from, you know, a legal regulation approach of allowing things to be legally regulated again. Um, so there's, there's pros and cons to both, but it really forced me to zoom out and say, okay, if we're weighing this in the balance of pros and cons, uh, where does that fall? And what does that mean for my values as a follower of Christ who believes people are made in the image of God and of infinite value and worth? And also as someone who's conservative, who um, has a lot of values, I think a lot of um, American Christians do over kind of the role of government and over what the kind of culture and world that we want to live in and the way that we want people to be um, 
cared for? What does that mean for me as a pro-life person? Um, and that journey um, ended up changing my mind as I began to see this big picture of um, not just do I think drug use is right or wrong, but how does handling drugs impact our world and more importantly, the people around us? Because I began to see that really how we handle drugs is about how we handle people. Yeah, that's that's uh, a fascinating journey. And it's so cool to see how God puts things into our lives that we never would have expected to take us in a certain direction. And yet God, you know, God Absolutely. uses those, those beautiful stories and those people in our lives. Christina, you, you contend that the, the vast majority of harm that occurs due to drugs is from criminalizing drugs, not necessarily from the substances themselves. Um, can you explain to us a little bit how you came to that conclusion and, and how that changes the way you view things? Yeah, absolutely. So I, on this journey, as I try to zoom out and say, okay, I want to see the biggest picture possible, um, I started to see this pattern in the kinds of harm that I was coming across and then learning about. Um, the pattern was that they fell into two categories. So one kind of harm from drugs comes from the harm that substances can do themselves by putting them in our bodies. The other kind of harm comes from um, what happens when you criminalize a substance. So when you criminalize a substance, there's kind of three categories of harm that either are created by that or they greatly expand. So the first is what happens in the market. So um, when you have a, a legal substance that operates in a legal market, we have all sorts of things we can go and buy at the store, um, including alcohol and tobacco now. But when you criminalize a substance, um, it doesn't go away. As long as there's demand for that substance, there's always going to be suppliers for it. It's just whether or not it's going to be supplied legally regulated or from an underground market. So when we banned a lot of drugs, they didn't go away, but they were forced into this underground market. So if we just look at what Mexican cartels are making off of United States drug sales, $20 billion a year is being made from U.S. consumers by Mexican drug cartels. So um, we are not fighting crime by prohibiting drugs. We're actually funding it by providing this huge revenue source for wow. people who can only get a piece of that revenue if they're willing to break the law. Because it operates outside of legal constraints, the only way you can defend your market share is through crime and violence. So we see a lot of crime and violence in our own cities and south of our border and countries around the world from this underground market and all of the crime and violence that comes with um, this unregulated free-for-all of the underground market. So that market piece, that harm comes from criminalizing. The crime that we see associated with drugs is not from uh, the drugs themselves largely, it's from the underground market related to that. So the second part is what happens to a substance when you criminalize it. So. Um, again, with kind of alcohol prohibition, we sort of have a cultural understanding of what happened during alcohol prohibition. Um, and we went from having, you know, legally regulated alcohol to uh, bootleg alcohol. You don't know what people are cooking up in their um, back behind their house or uh, their house or in their basement somewhere. Um, and the same thing has happened with drugs today. So instead of having legally regulated substances where we at least know what's in them, we know what potency they are, we can regulate those things, consumers understand what they're buying. We have baggies of powder on the street that people don't know what they're buying, they don't know what's in it. Um, and they're dying at far higher rates because of the unregulation that is part of an underground market, an underground substance supply. 
So when you look at what's happening um, right now, everyone today is familiar with this overdose epidemic that we are continuing to struggle with and it's getting far worse again in 2020. And if we look though at what's actually causing those overdoses, if you drill down into what did people have in their bodies when they died, 79% of opioid overdoses the people that died had heroin or fentanyl in their bodies. Fentanyl is an incredibly powerful um, synthetic opioid that's being added to drugs on the street because it allows um, you to have a, a bigger punch in a smaller package. And that's what a prohibitive market is always going for. If we have to smuggle a substance, we need it to be a big punch in a small package. So it's always moving towards more and more potent and deadly substances to try to get those um, substances in smaller packages. I heard somebody say, you know, it used to be before the days of fentanyl, it used to be that, you know, you had to smuggle a whole shipload of heroin in. Now you can smuggle a suitcase of fentanyl in and you have the same kind of impact of potency. So we have a huge overdose crisis, but the vast majority of those overdoses aren't happening from legal regulated substances. They're happening because of people getting substances on the street that they don't know the potency or purity of, and what they think is going to get them high actually ends up killing them. So this, we have this market harm that happens in an underground market. We have this substance harm that happens from the deregulation. And then we have what happens to consumers. And this is where Joanne came in for me, um, was seeing this kind of consumer piece. So I could see Joanne's drug use, but I could also see incarceration would just be really harmful. It would create this cycle of disconnection from her family, from her community, from her work, from the meaningful things that we know help people to overcome addiction. When she came out of incarceration, she would likely have a criminal record likely permanently, um, and that would create a lot of employment difficulty for the future. Uh, that whole cycle of incarceration, disconnection, difficulty reintegrating into society and being able to provide for your family, all of that is incredibly traumatic for the person who's experiencing it as well as their extended family. And what I learned on this journey was something I had never known before, which is the role of trauma in driving drug use and addiction, that it's one of the highest risk factors for whether a person um, who uses drugs begins problematically using them. Have they had trauma in their past? Um, because drug use at its core is ultimately about feeling better. Now, we might not want people to feel better in that way, um, but people use substances because they make them feel better. And for some people, that is the difference between a really difficult um, life experience or experiences and being able to numb the pain and grief and sorrow and hurt and shame of those experiences. And so when we traumatize people in an effort to get them to stop using substances, we're actually creating more risk factor for them to develop an addiction or for an addiction to increase. So I realized we're, we're not starving out addiction by criminalizing people who are using drugs. We're actually feeding it. We're not decreasing overdose deaths by prohibiting drugs. We're increasing them. And as a Christian who wants to see people's lives protected and upheld, and I want to see them living out their full potential as an image bearer of God, um, this just began to really crumble the foundation of why I had supported um, prohibiting drugs. So it, it wasn't that I came to the conclusion that, oh, I want people using drugs. It was that, no, wait, my, my goal has always been 
to reduce harm to people. My goal has always been that I want to see lives saved and preserved. But I came to realize that my goal was still the same, but what I think is actually going to get us closer to that goal is very different. Um, and I, that ended up changing my mind in favor of something that I never thought I would ever support, which would be um, a, a legal regulated market for drugs and handling drug use as a health issue rather than a criminal justice issue. Yeah, it's, it's fascinating how when we begin to dig in a little bit on, on certain things, we begin to see what is working, what isn't working, um, and, and we can begin to to kind of process through um, if this is the outcome that we think, uh, you know, honors God the most, if this is kind of a, a kingdom outcome, then are the things that we've been doing or the things that we've been proposing or the things that we've been supporting actually leading to that outcome or are they making it more challenging? And it seems like this is part of that journey that, that you've gone through. And so Christina, like what, what are you proposing then? Like as, as you've, as you've gone through this and thought through this, what do you think really needs to be done in regards to drugs? I mean, is this, you know, doing away with um, all the laws relating to drugs? What does this really look like in the real world? Yeah, so I think it, I think it should be um, based on the drug and the potential for harm, sort of how we approach um, the type of regulation that would most decrease um, the harm from, from drugs. So we've kind of done this with alcohol and tobacco. We have said, okay, we're going to set age restrictions on who can purchase it. We're going to set potency and purity guidelines. You have to um, put on the label what's in it. You have to put the proof, how strong, how potent it is. Um, we have laws around what you can do to other people. You know, you can't hurt other people just because you're drunk. You can't drink and drive. So we've kind of created um, a framework to protect other people as best we can from the harms of something like alcohol. Um, but we allow people to access it if they want to access it. And we do our best to mitigate those harms and to educate people um, about the potential for harm from using it. And I think that that kind of approach um, is the same approach that we need to take with other substances. That's not to say that there's not still going to be harm. And I think that's important. We have to, we have to acknowledge that there is no world where all harm from drugs goes away. That's not true with alcohol. We have loads of harm from alcohol today. But if you look at what happened during alcohol prohibition, Prohibition didn't stop people from drinking alcohol. It stopped a few people, um, but it also created this whole explosion of other harms in Al Capone and all of these people in the underground market, all the violence and crime and murder that happened, um, all of the contamination of substances. People didn't know what they were using anymore. So it, it isn't that there is a perfect solution. It's that we have to weigh the pros and cons of the solutions that we have in a broken world. And so I, I think when I look at that and say, okay, when I look at the market, when I look at the substance, when I look at consumers, which is kind of all three pieces of what we're talking about when we talk about substance use, um, I see additional harm from criminalizing. So that leads me, I kind of walked back to, um, wow, I really feel uncomfortable. This is like, I wish this led me somewhere else. Um, but it hasn't. It's led me to saying we need to find some sort of legally regulated market that we can sell substances in where people can access them um, under legally regulated businesses, that we protect children from them through um, age restrictions, that we protect the general public as best we can through restrictions on 
um, you know, driving while under the influence, working while under the influence, things like that. Um, but we need to be looking at what is the best solution that best decreases harm to people. Um, and not just to, not just a narrow view of, is this going to stop someone from using a drug? But we have to be willing to hold the tension of what's the cost of that. Um, I, I definitely would agree. There are some people today who aren't using substances because they're illegal that will probably use them if they're not illegal. That's true. I'm totally fine saying that that is true. But at what cost do we keep those few people from using those substances? So there's tens of thousands of people every year that are dying preventable deaths from prohibition. And so for me, as I weigh um, kind of my values and what I think sort of the highest values are, um, I, I can be okay with allowing people to make the choice to access the substance as an adult um, in order to save the lives of tens of thousands of people that are dying because of the unintended consequences, but consequences nonetheless, um, of prohibition. And so I think that can look different for different substances. Um, different countries are trying different things with um, heroin, using it in a clinical setting for people who are addicted to heroin already. Um, marijuana in regulated dispensaries, different states have tried different types of ways of dispensing marijuana. Um, there's different options, there's different regulatory options. We have a lot of those set up already, whether it's through prescription, whether it's through just accessing something at a pharmacy without a prescription, whether it's through a dispensary where you have to have an ID to get in the door. Um, we have a lot of different regulatory models already, and I think we could implement some of those, um, and other countries have done this, and um, to good effect, and are seeing a lot of decreased harm and a lot of increased um, better outcomes because of what they're doing. What they're doing is switching from a criminal justice approach to drugs to a health-centered approach to drugs. And as you do that, you see better outcomes. Um, and we have a lot of kind of internal uh, reaction to that. I definitely feel that. I feel that from people as we host events um, with the work that I do now. Um, and if we can be willing to stick with that long enough, hold that tension enough to say, okay, I need to consider the whole picture, um, then what conclusions do we come to? Because, you know, it's, it's, it's us who have determined the laws that we have now. It's, it's me. I voted for those laws um, for a long time. And the only way that we change those laws is for us um, collectively to make that decision, to change those laws again. And we hold the lives of people like Joanne in our hands of whether or not she's going to go to prison or whether or not she's going to be met with the, the kind of help that can help her overcome her addiction and parent and support this vulnerable family. Yeah, Christina, um, what do you say to those who, who listen to, to what you're sharing, uh, but step back and say, yeah, but, but the moment you um, decriminalize drugs, in essence, you are condoning their use? Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's a, that's a, that was a big question for me as I was on this journey. Um, and I think it's a big question, especially for a lot of Christians feeling like, whoa, we do not want to, we don't want to signal at all that we think this is okay. Um, and I would agree with that. But, but what I came back to was, okay, well, there are, there are a lot of bad or immoral or even outright sinful things um, that are not criminal, and Christians aren't lobbying for them to be criminal. I think about 
adultery or other addictions like gambling, pornography, um, addictions to alcohol or tobacco. Um, just because something is legal doesn't mean that we are encouraging people to use it. Um, and it doesn't mean that just because something is bad that uh, criminalizing it or using the criminal justice system is the best way to handle it. So we, we tend to think of our laws right now as sort of morally neutral and legalization as being sort of this only moral question. Whoa, could this possibly be okay? And, and I hope that we will consider um, that, that really what we're doing now is not a morally neutral position. There's a lot of people, tens of thousands of them dying every year. There is, there's moral cost on more than one side here. Um, and so as we consider, you know, what's the, what is the role of the law? I think that signaling piece of what are we signaling to people is a really big issue for a lot of people. Um, and I, I understand that. And I, in, in many ways, resonate with that. And yet I would say we, we have to be willing to also consider the question at what cost, at what cost are we willing, what's the cost we're willing to pay to signal? Are we willing um, to lose this many people to preventable deaths? Are we willing to lose um, this many families to preventable harm from incarceration and from living in communities um, that are impacted by the violence of, um, of substance use? Are we willing to make addiction worse for people through handling it through the criminal justice system? So I don't see it as encouraging or condoning um, drug use. Um, even with my own children, I have three sons, um, you know, as I talk to them about the work that I do, I'm always trying to hold that tension with them of this is what I do. I invite people to consider um, whether or not the criminal justice system is the right approach for substances, but these substances can be really harmful to you. And you need to know that. You need to know this is not a light topic. This is not something that doesn't matter. It's no big deal. Um, it, it is important. It can have very life-altering consequences. And yet, there are a lot of things that are wrong. Even, you know, if you think about as a Christian, the Ten Commandments, there's only two of them that are outright illegal, murder and theft. The rest of them we consider to be not just wrong, but, but sinful. Um, and yet we have not chosen to use the criminal justice system to handle those, um, those things that are wrong. And so I think that's, that's what I hope as Christians, particularly that we can consider um, that just because we, we believe something is wrong, um, and whether or not it even is wrong or sinful or immoral doesn't mean that the criminal justice system is the right um, way to handle that. And I think probably adultery is one of the, the best examples of sort of the way that we can see something as just categorically harmful, not just harmful to the person who does it, but to their whole family. It just is so, so harmful. And yet we're, we don't put people in prison for it. We just recognize that's, that's not the right approach to that. Um, it's not the way that we get better outcomes from that. And I think that same thing is true with drugs. It's true with alcohol and tobacco that we hold that tension of potential for harm while also allowing people to access it. Um, and with alcohol, not because we haven't tried prohibiting it, but because prohibition taught us that it doesn't, we don't get better outcomes that way. We get a lot of extra harms and people still drink alcohol. And so we went back to legally regulating that. And I think that's what we need to consider for other substances too. Yeah, no, no, that uh, that that seems to make sense as you process through it that way. Christina, earlier this month, Oregon became the first state here in America to decriminalize hard drugs, and um, and you alluded a, a, a bit to other countries that have done this. I think Portugal is probably the um, 
you know, the most has the most history that we can kind of mm-hmm. look at to see how, how that has has transpired there in Portugal. Uh, do you think that the U.S. Um, can do what Portugal has done to address, you know, the, the growing drug problem? Yeah, absolutely. So Portugal decriminalized all drugs in 2001. So they didn't actually legalize um, them. So they they still have the market harm from the underground market. Um, they still have substance harms because they have unregulated substances. But they started um, uh, with consumers treating them as patients again instead of criminals. So they treat drug use, drug possession as a health issue. You're not put in jail anymore just for possessing drugs, even if the drugs are, are illegal ones. Um, and they have seen fantastic outcomes from that. Their um, injection drug use rate has dropped in half. Their addiction rate has dropped by a third. They've seen a lot less property crime. As they're helping people to overcome their addictions in a, in a health-centered way, they're seeing a lot fewer harms from drug use in Portugal. And like you said, yes, Oregon became the first state to decriminalize all drugs, very similar to what Portugal has done. Um, and we would say that's that's a wonderful step forward, um, not because we don't think drug use is serious, but because handling it in a health-centered way instead of through the criminal justice system is the best possible way that we can help people address the real issues behind why they use drugs. Because drugs are really never the issue. Um, uh, I have a good friend who uh, worked for Prison Fellowship who says, you know, drugs are a solution. They're not the problem. Um, and he's in recovery. He says, you know, drugs are, are a, a solution attempt at other problems. And so the American way of, of handling drugs has been to focus on the drugs themselves and to try to just eradicate the drugs. Um, and what we need to be doing if we really want to see fewer people using drugs is addressing the deeper reasons of why people use them. Um, there's lots of reasons for that, whether it's trauma, whether it's lack of meaning and purpose, whether it's loneliness and lack of community. All of these things are areas that the church can and should be engaging on. And we have wonderful uh, opportunities to engage on and helping people um, to have meaningful lives. And we, we have the truth um, about how to have the most meaningful life. Um, and so I, I see what Oregon did as, as a huge step forward in stopping the use of the criminal justice system and allowing people to be um, addressed in a way that that best helps their drug use as far as, you know, we're talking about the law. And there are some people who, you know, they don't think that people need Jesus. They just think, you know, they need health care. Um, and I think people should absolutely have access to both. <laughs> they should have <laughs> access to uh, the life-changing gospel, and they should have access to um, health-centered solutions that help them overcome addiction, um, even if they don't find Jesus. And I want both of those things for them. All right. Christina, so, so what uh, do you see is the responsibility of church leaders in the efforts to remedy America's drug problem? This has been one of the toughest questions for me as I've um, gone on this journey, because for me, I feel so much of the way that I, um, the reason why I care about this, why I started End It For Good, why I do this work in the most conservative religious state in the country, in Mississippi, as a conservative Christian myself, um, it's hard. And yet, uh, for me, a lot, of, a lot of this is because of my faith. And so I, I wrestled through, I was emailing uh, pastor friends, you know, help me walk through, like, what how do I think about this in terms of sort of the role of uh, the church versus individual Christians? Because I definitely think this is a, an area where there's some Christian freedom. You know, the, the Bible doesn't give us explicit instructions about how we should handle 
drugs. It does give us explicit instructions about how we um, should handle human life, how we should value people who are made in the image of God. Um, but how we live that out is a lot grayer than we wish that it was. And so kind of where I have landed is um, I think this is a, an, era, an area where, you know, in the same way that I don't want pastors preaching that criminalizing drugs is the right thing to do. I don't know that I want them preaching that legalizing drugs is the right thing to do. I don't know that that's really the role of um, uh, the best role of the church. And yet um, in America, we have had a, a great deal of marrying of um, the Christian faith with this tough on drugs approach. And so it, it's a conundrum to me. And I, I hope that we um, as Christians and as leaders are, are willing to struggle with that. What does that mean for us? We have been very vocal historically on, um, you know, uh, kind of tough on drugs and we need to not support any, any um, attempts to legally regulate drugs. And so there are many pastors who have changed their minds, many ministry leaders who have changed their minds. Um, but don't feel that it's really their place to, to vocally say that. And so I think this tension here um, for me is that there, there's a part of me that, that doesn't want pastors preaching about this. And yet m the majority, I think, of um, Christians in America feel faith bound to support criminalization, that it has had a strong faith component over the last couple of decades. And so there's a part of me that, that sort of wants pastors to free their congregations from this belief that to be a good Christian means that you support tough on drugs policies um, and to allow people to journey themselves and really consider where do my faith and values lead me? And if that leads me to legal regulation, that's, that's okay. That's a consistent view um, with being a Christian. If it doesn't lead me there, um, that's okay. I, I need to, to follow my conscience on that. And I do think people should follow their conscience. But I think um, for Christian leaders to, to at least engage this conversation is really important. Because what I've found in our work is that there are lots and lots of Christians who are rethinking these issues um, and they're looking to their leaders to, to sort of signal to them, is it okay to rethink what we've been doing? And, and the leaders are, are um, concerned that they might signal the wrong thing or that well, I don't really know if this is my place. So there's a, there's a lot of, um, we're in a bit of a conundrum <laughs> where the people want to hear from their leaders that maybe there's more to this than we have thought in the past years. Um, and, and the leaders are wanting to be very careful with their congregations that they don't um, you know, get muddied up in, um, you know, kind of crossing what the church should be talking about versus kind of what is um, areas of, you know, politics and things like that. Um, and so I think because of the, the history of Christianity and um, especially in America over the last couple of decades of really um, this concept that good Christians support criminalizing drugs, um, I would love to see maybe not from the pulpit, but maybe in other areas and other um, uh, kinds of discussions, pastors and ministry leaders engaging this issue and inviting their people to engage this issue um, as well and, and journeying together towards a better um, outcome. We know what we're going to get by doing what we've done. We have incredible overdose rates, lots of crime, lots of people in prison, lots of broken families. Um, and, and the door that I, I hope that we can open is to say, is there a better way? 
is there not a perfect way, but a better way? Is there better ways that we can handle this so that people um, can live out their full potential as image bearers of God? Um, and I would love to see pastors and ministry leaders finding creative ways to engage these issues with their people because their people desperately want to hear from them um, and to be led at least to be released to kind of um, engage these issues and think about them in a more nuanced way than we have. Yeah, Christina, that's, that's really helpful. And as we, as we wrap up this conversation, I was wondering if you could help um, provide some very, you know, practical steps or, or, or point us to, to resources that the pastors and church leaders listening in today um, can, can kind of engage with um, as they begin exploring how we address drugs, drug use, criminalization, legalization, and these types of things. Absolutely. Um, so you can go to enditforgood.com, which is our website. We have some resources there. Um, by far the best resource that I would encourage people um, to the point of begging them to read is a book called Chasing the Scream by Johan Hari. Um, he took this kind of three-year journey to understand what's happening with drugs around the world, what drives addiction. It is a fascinating book. Um, we have given out over 2000 copies of it to Mississippians who have asked us for copies. And you think about Mississippi, nobody thinks anyone's interested in changing anything in Mississippi. And yet we've had 2000 people in Mississippi say, please, we want to learn. We want to know what else is out there. Um, and that book has been, uh, we have heard the most helpful resource for people in understanding what is happening, the cost and benefit of prohibition versus legalization and regulation. Um, it's a very narrative driven, it's all stories. Johan is not a Christian um, and he's not conservative, but his writing is very, um, just presents what he learned and says, draw your own conclusions from that. You know, this is where it's led him, but make your own decision. And we have found interestingly enough that conservative Christians have loved reading that book. So we have about a hundred copies. We would love to send out free to anyone listening today. Um, if they would like a copy, you can email Jennifer at enditforgood.com. Um, Jennifer works with me in marketing and she would love to send you out a free copy if that's something that you will read. Um, and it just helps to create uh, a better conversation and, and a, a bigger picture. And I would really encourage people to read that. Chasing the Scream, you can buy it on Amazon um, or you can email us and get a copy of that. Um, and I would love to hear people's thoughts. Christina at enditforgood.com. I would love to hear from you. I'd love to answer questions. We host events here in Mississippi. We've had about 700 people that have come to different community events that we've done. Um, everyone from pastors and ministry leaders to judges and sheriffs and mayors and uh, soccer moms. Um, people want to know about other options. They want to have this discussion because in our churches today, we have thousands and thousands of people who are either struggling with a drug addiction themselves or have family members who are struggling. Um, one in 10 Americans has used an illegal drug recently. That's, that's the United States, um, the office that controls the drug war. That's their number. That's not a legalization group's number. That's, that's the drug war's own facts is that one in 10 Americans has used an illegal drug recently. Drug use is rampant. Addiction is rampant. And families in our churches are suffering under the weight of shame and silence of not knowing how to think about this, how to understand it. They feel like they failed as parents if their children use drugs, if their children struggling with addiction, if their loved one dies of an overdose, they feel ashamed. 
um, people are suffering and struggling and they want desperately to have a place to have a more nuanced conversation to think through these things. And I think that is what the church can provide maybe can't provide. This is the path you must take but can provide a safe place to have these conversations and an open place to consider alternatives. Excellent. Excellent. Christina, thank you so much for um, walking us through this and, and challenging us to to think uh, maybe more deeply about a topic that we just kind of in some ways take for granted uh, and, and make some assumptions about um, maybe how we should be thinking about it. Um, but you challenge us to to really um, to really think and to dig in. So we thank you for that. And for our listeners, um, we will have links in the show notes for this episode to end it for good. Uh, which is the nonprofit that Chris, Christina has started, and also for the book Chasing the Scream and uh, the other things that Christina referenced. So you can check out the show notes for more information there. Christina, thank you so much for making the time to be with us in the church leaders audience. Certainly appreciate the work you're doing and and um, how you're just approaching, as you said, a, a, a challenging topic um, because um, I'm sure uh, you get pushback uh, from a, a variety of, of, of places. And so thank you for the courageous work that you're doing in this. Thank you. I really appreciate um, being here. And uh, it was really fun yesterday. Beckham, Joanne's son from the story in the beginning, just celebrated his fifth birthday. Um, it's got to see pictures of that on Facebook. They're doing great. Joanne has been sober um, since Beckham was uh, born, basically, and um, works full time now helping other people get into treatment. She's a wonderful mother. Um, it's awesome to see outcomes like that. And it doesn't always happen that way. There was actually, I'll tell you quickly before we finish, there was another mom um, who lived really close to Joanne. Uh, very similar situation. Her son was fostered by some friends of ours, um, but she was charged criminally for her prenatal drug use. So Joanne, this path diverges. Joanne goes to treatment and she has been with her son ever since um, raising him. And Nikki um, has been in prison ever since. And she is serving a 15 year prison sentence for her prenatal drug use while her children are growing up without her. Um, her mom is raising them, working two jobs to try to provide for them and support Nikki while she is in prison. Very similar um, circumstances. These are both, um, you know, moms in their 30s uh, wanting to be uh, free of their addiction, but struggling and yet um, very different outcomes and very different perpetual outcomes for Joanne's son and for Nikki's children as they walk out um, the results of what happens when we do one or the other. We don't always get outcomes like Joanne, um, but we know what happens when we, um, when we criminalize, and that is outcomes like Nikki's, and that's going to be and continues to be incredibly painful for uh, her family as they walk that out. There's a lot at stake, so I really, really appreciate you, Jason, for hosting this conversation and would love to continue this conversation um, with others and hope to see it um, continued in more public spaces like this. I think this is fantastic, and I'm really thankful for the work that you're doing. Excellent. Thank you so much, Christina. God bless you. You too. Thank you for tuning in to this week's episode. Every week as we are putting the episodes together, we're thinking of you, our pastors and ministry leaders, and striving to provide insightful and inspiring interviews as you seek to grow as a kingdom leader. We hope you are finding value from the Church Leaders Podcast, and if so, we would appreciate you taking a few moments to head over to iTunes and leave us a review. Your positive reviews and ratings help other church leaders more easily find our podcast so they can benefit as well. Thank you in advance. And if you have any comments, suggestions, or ideas for guests, I would love to hear from you. 
You can send an email to podcasts at churchleaders.com or connect with me on Twitter. You can find this podcast as well as other great faith-based podcasts on the FaithPlay app, available for both Apple and Android. So be sure to check out FaithPlay. Until next time, this is Jason Day encouraging you to love well and lead well. You've been listening to the Church Leaders Podcast. For articles, videos, and free resources that will help you lead better every day, visit our website at churchleaders.com. Thanks for listening.